0: The scripture reading for today comes from Revelation 19.13. If you'd like to turn in your Bible to that and read along with me. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It's Revelation 19.13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Amen. Our brother Dean will now bring us today's message, the Son of Man and the Great White Throne. Good morning. I uh, was privileged this morning through the uh, expertise of my granddaughter and my daughter to watch something on on a laptop that was quite inspiring. It was The picture, not only the story, but the picture of a very specialized surgeon who did an amazing feat. So many times surgeons and doctors are criticized, but you know there are times when they save lives. And this surgeon surgeon had diagnosed a defect in an unborn child still in the womb. And the child had a spina bifida, but a very, very bad one. And I I watched this. The surgeon had opened the abdomen, placed the uterus outside of the body, opened the uterus, took the baby out, did an incredible, delicate surgery to repair the defect so that this child can have a normal life. And... Put everything back together. The baby's just smiling, doing fine. But what happened was something I think maybe you'll never forget. I won't. I saw this in moving color. The baby reached out of that womb and grasped the surgeon's finger and held on. Incredible. The surgeon said it was the most Incredible experience of, in, of his entire career. We link that to the sermon this morning about the Son of Man and the Great White Throne. By the way, before we begin, I want you, I want you to know that um, it is written last weekend. You know, the, the year before, we had this incredible experience of getting, missing the turnoff to where we were going to be and uh, go down into Monterey and uh, go down a dark street and park there and I had no clue what to do. It was all dark. There was one little shady, yeah, shady light up there. And while I was there pondering what to do, a pickup drove up and a guy got out of the pickup and I thought, well, here's my chance to ask somebody where I go. So I did that. I rolled down my window and he came across the street. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know if he had a gun. I hadn't know, knew nothing about him. And so he pulled out his little um, iPhone, whatever it was there, and so told him where I wanted to go. He said, oh, well, you go back this way and you go down that freeway about four miles and you make a left there and everything will be fine. And I rolled up the window and Mona and I and Pam was in the car and I looked over there and he, 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 the pickup was gone. This year, a year later, you see Sandy and John are following us, you see, and I was leading them, supposedly, so the directions were kind of goofy. I have glasses, and I can read, but the directions were funny, and so I pulled off the the way I thought I was going, and I was ready to make a right turn down to who knows where i 'd have still been there had not something happened i'd have still been searching this weekend. John and Sandy drove up on the left and rolled down the window. Nice to see you, John. Nice to see you. Well, Dean, nice to see you, too. And as I was making a right-hand turn, John said, No, Dean, I think you better go straight ahead. Oh, okay. And we made it just fine. So, John and Sandy, thank you. Otherwise, I'd still be wandering around Monterey. Okay. Now, um, I want to also start this morning with something that I, I've read this passage many, many, many times, and it always impresses me in a, to a great degree. But this last night, it was, it impressed me in another way, because I learned something new. Have you ever read a Bible verse for the eighth, 18th, 38th time, and pretty soon, oh, I missed that. For Christ sent me... Not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. I had read that and read that and read that. And last night it hit me. Wait a minute. That's saying that the one that stands up to preach, if he's thinking he just has wisdom of words, the Bible says that's worthless. In fact, it says it's worse than worthless because the Lord won't even bless. It would be none effect. The gospel would be of none effect. And I'm saying to myself, wow. So this morning I would humbly ask you, put the person speaking aside and let the the word speak. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, this morning we come to you. I ask you to forgive my sins, I ask you to guide us from the scripture, and I ask you, Lord, to bless our meeting so that the words of life, the words of the gospel, the words of the scripture will be to effect and open the minds of the hearers to hear the Word of God in Jesus name. Amen. The cry from the cross, his words saying, "It is finished. It is finished." These were the most dramatic, important words ever spoken from human lips. These words were a shout of victory. Thus, this shout of victory affected our entire planet, but much more the entire universe, even to the courts of heaven where the angels dwell. The tyranny of darkness was overthrown with this shout of victory. The leader of this darkness was unmasked, never to be the same again." The conflict that had raged for four millenniums, that's 40 centuries. That is the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of love versus the kingdom of hate. The kingdom of Christ versus the kingdom of Satan. This little paragraph is from R. Allen Anderson of so many years ago, of yesteryear. Kingdom of Christ versus the kingdom of Satan. The character of God versus the character of Satan. All were unmasked that day all were represented on this dark and foreboding Friday afternoon outside Jerusalem on the hill known as Golgotha yet this day was the most glorious day in all the earth's history because on this day the gulf that separated heaven and earth was bridged it was all God's work that day man had nothing to do with it no one on earth really knew what was happening save one, Jesus, the man Jesus, hanging there between earth and heaven. For you see, Jesus said, they know not what they are doing as he was praying for their forgiveness as they were torturing him. In 1 Corinthians two eight, Paul tells us, none of the powers of the world understood this. If they had understood, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. This morning, I'm indebted to a large extent to Cliff Goldstein and Dwight Nelson for some of the thoughts that we have this morning. The story of a young boy who was terribly ill, so sick, in fact, that the doctor said he was going to die, unless and here his, hung, his fate hung on this. They could find someone with his rare match of blood. And here it was. Someone that had to have the rare match of blood to save his life. All the family members were tested. And then finally, the, um, his little sister. The doctor and her parents explained to her the nature of the emergency and asked whether she would be willing to give some of her blood to save her very sick brother. Turning away, she pondered the proposition. Finally, she looked back and nodded her little curls and said, okay. Yet, she would give her blood for her sick brother. Soon, she was connected to the little plastic bag that began to drip with her life-saving blood. The minutes ticked by, the procedure ended finally, and as they led the little girl back into the labort- out of the laboratory with a quivering lip, tear-brimmed eyes, she looked up to her father's face and finally quietly said, Daddy, when will I die now? When will I die now? For a split second, the father looked puzzled, and then, like a flash of lightning, it hit him. His little girl had just gone through the entire procedure, donating her blood, believing that it was all over for her. She would die now. Did she die for her brother? The shining truth is that in her mind, she did die for her brother. She gave her life for someone she loved. Just like Jesus, who in his Mind that Friday afternoon gave up his life forever so that you and I might live forever and ever as fallen human beings with limited knowledge we can only marvel at what we know about our faith the creator the most exalted being in the universe the one greater than even the universe he created the one who stood over it became the lowest of the low and died a sinner's second death in order that no sinner would ever have to face that death themselves the one who is equal with God the one who is God the one who is the highest and the most exalted in all creation becomes at the cross the lowest even a curse for us for you see in that day the people believed that anybody that hung on a cross was the lowest of the low and deserved to die. Galatians 3.13. In order that we would never have to face that curse ourselves, Jesus died for us. The Apostle Paul wrote about Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Philippians 2, 6-8. The one who made everything made himself nothing. Did you hear that? The one who made everything made himself as nothing. So that we could have the promise of eternal life and live forever forever. Yet there's incredibly more, a point that we don't often dwell on, but that makes Christ's work for us even more amazing. A writer of a hundred years ago said it like this: But his life and his death, Christ has achieved even more than recovery from the ruin wrought through sin. It was Satan's purpose, it was Satan's purpose to bring about an eternal separation between God and man. But in Christ, we become more closely united to God than, we, than if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Do you love that? A tie that is never to be broken. Through the eternal ages, he is linked with us to assure us of his immutable counsel of peace. God gave his only begotten son to become one of the human family forever. To retain his human nature, God has adopted human nature in the person of his son and has carried the same into the highest heaven where he intercedes for us now. It is the son of man who shares the throne of the universe. This morning we will have scripture after scripture after scripture telling us that Jesus is the son of man. Not only did the Lord take upon himself humanity, but he will retain that humanity forever. Humanity and the person of Christ will share the throne of the universe for eternity. Eternity. As if the pre-cross and the cross manifestations of Christ weren't more than enough for our fallen minds to grasp, we now add this thought. With something so incredible presented to us, the question is, what does the Bible say but the humanity of Christ after the cross. We first start in the Old Testament with um, a story that we're, most of us are very familiar with, the fiery furnace, Daniel 321 21-25. We first get a glimpse. One of the most well-known stories in the Bible is that of the three Hebrews thrown into the fiery furnace for their refusal to break even one of God's Ten Commandments. In this case, the commandment against idolatry. Look at what happened. So we read from Scripture now. So these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wearing their robes, this is from Scripture, their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace because they refused to bow down before King Nebuchadnezzar in Old Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar Leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into this fire? They replied, Certainly, your master. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the Son of God. That's in your Bible, friends. King, pagan King Nebuchadnezzar had some insight that the fourth one in that fire looked like. How would he know that? Looked like the Son of God. In this story, centuries before the cross, Jesus is depicted as the Son of God. A few chapters later in Daniel 7, the prophet has presented a vision again. This time of the great pre-advent judgment. Pre-advent judgment. Now this is before the millennium as Jesus comes a judgment that takes place just prior to the second coming of Jesus a judgment that seems to lead right to his coming itself notice quoting the Bible now as I looked thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat his clothing was as white as snow and the hairs of his head was like wool his throne was flaming with fire and his wheels were all ablaze a metaphor to be sure A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were opened. My friends, I ask a question. At that moment in time, do you want to be standing in your own righteousness? Or would you rather have a white robe that is freely offered to each one of us? In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Now the story shifts. One like the Son of Man. Coming in the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. Note the term every language. There's another Bible comment that says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world to every kingdom nation tongue and people apparently it worked because now it says every language worshiped him daniel 7 9 to 14 unlike the earlier manifestations of christ which was centuries before the cross event this occurs long after the cross depicts Jesus now as a son of man. Please remember that phrase. Before we're finished today, you're going to hear it over and over and over again. When the Lord has something that he wants to tell us, he often repeats it over and over again, so somebody like me can understand it. A phrase commonly understood to emphasize the humanity of Jesus This phrase, the Son of Man. Thus, Christ is depicted with an image that points out his human nature long after his death and resurrection. There it is, the Son of Man. Numerous times while here on earth, in the flesh, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Remember the phrase we're going to say over and over again. Again, a reference to his humanity and his ties to the human family. When Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea... Philippi, he asked his disciples, Disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He called himself the Son of Man, my friends. Many Bible verses back this up. All these precious pre-resurrection references to himself make sense when we consider how important and central Christ's humanity is to the plan of salvation. He had to become human. He had to take upon himself our humanity in order to be our substitute and example. Notice, however, the following few texts. Here we get into the Bible. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even to the west, so will the coming of what? The Son of Man be. Matthew 24:27. Another one. Then shall appear, then will appear, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all peoples of the earth will moan, mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, that is, those without the robe of Christ' righteousness. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven, from Mark 14. All these are unmistakable references to the second coming of Jesus and all of them include the phrase the Son of Man. These texts point to his human nature long after his earthly journey was over. Time time for a story of such. Many times I've walked the hospital hallways and also in nursing homes, even in clinics, I've heard people scream and yell in pain, agonizing pain. But I've never heard the sheer and naked terror of Golgotha's scream. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was no whimper, this loud voice cry it was no doubt like his final cry, a shriek and a shrill and agonizing one. What is this God-forsaken terror from the middle cross? Could it be the noiseless approach of the second death that Jesus senses in that darkness that Friday afternoon? That death that was eternal, that he was willing to die for you and me? The death that heretofore has never been witnessed anywhere in the universe. It's called the second death in Revelation 20 verse 6 and the eternal death in Romans 6.23. Was it the nameless terror of his nameless foe that triggered Christ's naked scream? The supernatural funeral-type darkness enveloping his cross was cryptic evidence that the separation Jesus had pleaded against in the garden Of Gethsemane was in fact now coming to pass. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just the horror of the realization that the one with whom he had shared eternity past is gone. Why have you abandoned me? He cried out. But to that scream comes no reply, save the silence of the later tomb and in the darkness of the cross. He's been cut off forever. He thought. The jeering priests and the rabble were right. And by the way, next comes the most, one of the most powerful sermons in all of Scripture, just a few words long. But it was preached by a man that did not know the Lord of glory. He didn't know. And from down in front of the cross came these words. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. But he said it in jesting and jeering and mockery. Matthew 25, 27, 42. And that is the gospel truth, for had he saved himself that Friday afternoon, then he would have that would have been all he would have saved. He would have saved no one else. Just himself. It is the incomprehensible truth of divine love, God's love in Christ that kept him from saving himself, leading him instead to sacrifice himself forever and ever, just to save sinners, the likes of you and me. Not even his scream in the dark could change his mind or reverse his choice. The God who chose us in the beginning chose us in the ending on the cross. Then there are Christ's appearances after his resurrection in which the reality of his human body is emphasized when first appearing to his disciples who thought he was some sort of an apparition. Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Quoting from scripture, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? He had a little humor there, didn't he? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have... Flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And and while they still did not believe, can you imagine these words? They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, do you have anything to eat here? I'm hungry. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. <laughs> Luke twenty four thirty eight to 43 Jesus' hands and feet were obviously to show them his scars. The eating showed them the reality of his humanity, of his human flesh. Again, this is all after his death and resurrection. Though the emphasis here was that he truly was risen, He used the physical fact of his human body, his flesh, his bones, and scars, along with eating, to make this point. A number of years ago, it was a news photograph from that day in 1973 when the prisoners of war came home from Vietnam. The giant gray C-140 Hercules transport had brought them from a prison camp to land in America. They landed and taxied up to the runway at a west coast air base. Down the Lord's stairway they stepped, the first returning prisoners of war, to the boisterous welcome of their cordoned-off loved ones. But our eyes are drawn to one soldier in particular, dressed in a crisp military khaki uniform, his pleated cap perched atop his face, gaunt from the years of prison, but very proud. Something had caught his attention. Somebody had broken out of the roped-off crowd and was racing toward him. A look of joyful ecstasy on her face, her long hair streaming in the airport wind. Her curls were flying. He must have heard her call on him, because in spotting her, he instinctively dropped his duffel bag and bending at his knees, his arms thrown wide open to catch his little girl. And when the camera shutter clicks, her feet are off the ground, her arms suspended in midair, reaching out. He was reaching out to her, returning father. Freeze frame, black and white photograph, a black and white moment in timelessness, the portrait of a father and his child and their reunion. This story takes us to Jesus with his outstretched arms on the cross so that he would never forget that they are the arms of our Father which art in heaven. Arms that are always wide open to all of us, no matter how we treat him. With a picture like this for the life of me and the life of you, I can't think of a reason not to step into the outstretched arms that are waiting for us there. We come next in scripture to one of the most powerful passages of all time Stephen's testimony Acts 7 tells of Stephen before the religious leaders of Israel To whom he had been brought concerning his faith in the outstretched arms Stephen then launches into a long speech about the history of the Hebrew nation Which he ends up condemning those who resist the Holy Spirit An act that leads to his martyrdom before he's killed, the Bible gives the following account of what happened, reading from Scripture. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Acts 7:55 and 56. Stephen clearly calls Jesus the Son of Man as he sees a vision of Him in heaven alongside the Father. Again, why not the Son of God as opposed to the Son of Man, which indisputably points to Christ's humanity, our brother, our brother, my friends. Taken together, these verses provide ample evidence of the humanity of Christ after His death and resurrection. Thus the humanity that he acquired in the act of becoming a human being, a son of man, stayed with him even after his work on earth was finished. We remember Revelation 19, 13. That's the beautiful chapter, one of the great chapters of Scripture, Revelation 19. And in verse 13, you come down there to something Like this, quote, he was clothed in a vesture, dipped in blood. My friends, that implies that not only throughout eternity will Jesus have the scars in his hands, in his feet, in his head. But he purposely wears a robe dipped in blood. The book of Hebrews, with its emphasis on Christ as our high priest in heaven, makes a powerful case for the continuing humanity of Christ, even after he returned to heaven. In fact, these texts give the idea that his continued humanity is crucial to his work of mediation for you and me. Notice, since the children... This is quoting from Hebrews now. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. We realize that happened at the cross. And this and that is of the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them. When it mentioned the descendants of Abraham, does that leave us out? No. No. The Bible is clear. If we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are descendants of Abraham. No matter where we were born. No matter what race we are. He had to be like them, fully human in every way, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews two fourteen to 18. Not only did Jesus take upon himself human nature, he needs the nature to be a merciful and faithful high priest, He needs to understand our weaknesses. Remember the Bible tells us he knows where we were born. He knows all the trials that we face. Because he went through them a hundredfold over. In heaven the humanity of Christ is the bond through which he has linked himself with us forever. A link that he kept long after his work on earth was finished. A link that's crucial to the work he's doing for us now in heaven as our high priest. If all this is not clear, Paul makes the point unambiguously clear Quote, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. What's next? The man Christ Jesus second Timothy two first Timothy two, four and five The man Christ Jesus. Jesus, though still divine, still retains in heaven the humanity that he first took upon himself in Bethlehem night when he was born into this world. Even after the cross, even after the resurrection, Christ, who took upon himself our humanity, has taken that humanity with him into heaven. And in that humanity, he ministers on our behalf. You remember the hill outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jesus told his disciples, I have an appointment to meet with you out there. They went out there waiting. The book of Acts tells us there were over 500 people there that watched him slowly go up from this earth to find gravity into the courts of heaven. Now, I said so often the Bible has great humor at times. Then the angels asked the disciples, ye men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? What? (laughs) This same Jesus shall so come in like manners. You have seen him go into heaven. Angels, you're full of humor. If you watch somebody suddenly defy gravity, go up into heaven, I think you'd be amazed. And they said, it's no big deal, disciples. We do it all the time. In the house of my friends... There's one verse in Scripture we're coming to shortly that is absolutely amazing. It's from the Old Testament. We've looked at numerous texts that point to his second coming. And in all those texts, the humanity of Christ is emphasized. These prove that his human nature stayed with him even when his mediation was finished. Unless something in the Bible teaches that after the second coming, Christ's humanity were to disappear and nothing in Scripture does, you can't find a verse like that. We have to believe that this humanity will never leave him. In other words, the Bible gives us powerful reasons to believe that Christ is forever to retain his human nature, the nature that he took with him to heaven after his work on on earth was done. Many scholars over the centuries have seen the words in Zechariah. Here it is, Zechariah 13.6. How long has it been since you read that verse? Someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? And they will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. That's messianic terms. Messianic terms indeed. They apply it to Jesus and the scars of his crucifixion. With that interpretation, these words coming from a hundred years ago, become even more powerful, writing about the end of sin and the final destruction of the lost and the beginning of a new heaven and a new earth. Quote, One reminder alone remains, our Redeemer will ever bear the marks of his crucifixion. Throughout eternity, upon his wounded head, upon his side, his hands and his feet, are the only traces of the cruel work that sin has wrought. And the tokens, do you believe these next words? You haven't heard them yet. If you're asleep, wake up. And the tokens of his humiliation are his highest honor. The creator that sits in the throne room of heaven, that speaks the world into existence, a planet is done. It speaks the Garden of Eden and it's done that man says that his highest honor in eternity are the wounds and the tokens of his humiliation are his highest honor. Although the eternal ages, the wounds of Calvary will show forth his praise and declare his power, the great controversy, this is from the great controversy, no question grasping the incredible truth of the cross of the Creator dying in our humanity for humanity's sins is hard enough. And so that truth, that this other revelation, that Jesus not only has taken this acquired humanity with Himself to heaven, but will forever retain the humanity, then all we can do, as did Job, when he, when the Lord revealed His sin to him, is all we can do is abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. What do you think? Um, We close now with um, going towards the book of Revelation. In one of the most breathtaking scenes of all the apocalypse, Revelation, there comes the moment when the great white throne of the Most High God is raised, high above the assembled universe, quoting from scripture revelation 20:11 and i saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whom faced the earth and the heaven fled away and we will see we will all stare for we will all be there do you know that everyone ever born on this earth the billions upon billions and billions of people everyone born will be there at that moment And we will all stare, for we will all be there, be assured. Is this the man who stripped himself half naked to the waist with towel and basin, who washed the feet of twelve disciples, still arguing, still sinful? He washed their feet and told them, by the way, you're clean. the twelve pair of dirty feet that belonged to twelve men, like you and like me, who should have lined up each in his turn to wash the master's feet. Is this the same God? How can it be? Who with hands tied behind his back endured the slaps, the fists, the spit in the face, who with face now black and blue was stripped naked to be flogged one lash short of death who with battered face and bloody back and legs is finally nailed to that splintery cross and hung there between heaven and earth with his blood soaking up the ground that he had created far above the city words written a hundred years ago and taken really in collage from Daniel and Revelation we close far above the city, upon a foundation of burnished gold, is a white throne high and lifted up upon this throne sits the Son of God, known as the Son of Man, around him are the subject of his kingdom. the power and majesty of Christ, no language can describe, no pen portray the glory of the eternal Father is enshrouding his son, the brightness of his presence fills the city of God and flows out beyond the gates, flooding the whole earth with its radiance. Is it any wonder then we shall all one day bow before this humble God? And is there any question we should begin by bowing to him right now? want to close now with Revelation 19, this magical, wonderful, incredible, magical in the spiritual sense, um, chapter of Scripture. We have in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice. After all this, after all Christ has done, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. For the marriage supper of the Lamb is come and His wife, You and me, the church, has made herself ready. We've made ourselves ready only because we've taken the white robe of Christ's righteousness without a thread of human devising, my friends. But then the final verse this morning for us to remember, all the verses we've read about that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. He's our brother. He understands us. He understands us. And he still wants us in heaven with him. So let us remember, he'll have his scars throughout eternity. The head, the feet, the side, the hands. Where our names are graven on the palms of his hands. Yes, he will have that throughout eternity. But more than that, lest we forget... Verse 13 from Revelation 19, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. His white robe is stained with crimson. For you and for me. Eternal Father, we're thankful this morning we can be here. We're thankful that we've heard the words that you've spoken, the words of the scripture that cut right to our heart and our mind and our soul. Because you live, we can all face tomorrow. Because you live, all fear is gone. Because we know that you hold the future. And life is worth living just because you live. Oh Lord, until that day... May we realize that this gospel is going to every corner of the world. Hundreds of thousands of people are being baptized and learning to know you better and waiting for you to come in the clouds of heaven. Oh, Lord, may each one here be among that group. Is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.